great to have our beloved former pastor and his wife, Drew and Evie, visiting here today um, with us for a few, a few days anyways, and um, ministering God's word to us. Our congregation met a couple of weeks ago for a business meeting, and um, well, I, I need to share some resolutions of gratefulness to God for Pastor Drew Corbett that the congregation, uh, the members, unanimously drafted for this occasion. The members of Grace Baptist Church meeting on August 27th, 2023, unanimously remember with thanksgiving how more than 20 years ago Drew Corbett, together with his dear wife, Evie, heeded the call of God and of God's people to shepherd the flock here in Dansville, New York, and how for a decade he ministered with faithfulness, zeal, humility, integrity, and vision. We resolve to follow Pastor Drew's example and to consider the outcome of his life, not least in regards to the raising of children and the fear and the admonition of the Lord, a passion for worldwide missions, and the willingness to take leave of houses and land and family for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. We rejoice in God's kindness to have used his own word as a divine instrument and Pastor Drew as a human instrument to lead our church into a richer understanding of the gospel and of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners and to lead us to bring our beliefs and practices into greater conformity of these truths. We lament but trust the Lord's providence that cut short for health reasons Pastor Drew's faithful and effective ministry among us. We pray for Pastor Drew's spiritual and physical health as he continues to engage in kingdom work through his church in Louisville, Kentucky. We re reaffirm our commitment to gospel partnership with Pastor Corbett's children and their families as they labor for the sake of Christ in dark and difficult fields. And we honor Pastor Corbett, our faithful father and brother, with all of the honor that is due him. We intend to communicate our heartfelt sentiments by the public reading of these resolutions when Pastor Drew visits us on September 17th, 2023. Amen. That's come, and, and you can just reaffirm again, members, if this is your heartfelt um, resolution of thanks, give a hearty amen. 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 Uh, brother, we love you. Uh, we're thankful to God for you, and now we call upon you to preach God's word to us. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Wow, that was amazing. I'm going to think I'm going to put that in the kitchen where my wife can see that all the time. <laughs> it's a huge blessing to be here. I was thinking as I was looking out in your foyer at the proposed building one day, if I had a million bucks, this is where I would invest it, right here where God is doing something very, very special. It is great to be back. Dave is always so gracious, inviting me to preach, inviting me to be here for this 40th anniversary. It's amazing, isn't it? Time flies. You realize that my grandkids, none of them know me as a pastor. Maybe you've never heard me preach. I don't know. Catch you guys, maybe if you remember, don't know. But time flies so fast, and the, the decades move on and move you from one stage to the, to the next. And we're so grateful that God has brought uh, Dave and Jamie here and uh, elders that keep things going and way better uh, than when I was here. Things are organized, your music, everything is just great. 
and I appreciate being here. It is certainly a thrill of our life. As we celebrate 40 years of ministry, I congratulate you that you are all grown up. You have growth periods. You're a toddler in the beginning, and then you're an adolescent, a teenager, and you finally kind of get the feet up under you, and at 40, you kind of begin to come to yourself, and you know what you're about, and and you, Dave, you're 40-something, right? 40 what? Something. Something. And he's aged well. And 40 years in a church is a good thing. I'm part of a church in Louisville. It is, I think, the oldest church in Kentucky, 1792. And not long ago, they pulled out all the old stuff and read them and realized that where that church is now doctrinally and reformed is what they were almost 200 years ago. Elders and everything. And we're just now kind of moving, helping that church to move to eldership. We're all grown up. Celebrations are a wonderful thing. They really are. They are God-honoring. It's a time to look back and honor and praise God for what he has done. And also a time to say, okay, now we're 40. Now what? We're not going to quit at 40. 40 is where things really begin to happen and where you've got a lot of things settled and what God can do on those foundations. So an opportunity to look forward. So I dug in right away when Pastor Dave asked if I would potentially be able to come from New Jersey, where we often are. I said, no, I can't come from Jersey, but I'll come from Kentucky. So I immediately started to think, how can I connect 40? So I started thinking, 40 in the Bible. So I began to look through, and I thought, let's see, Noah and the flood. Wasn't that 40 days of rain and 40 nights? And the flood that destroyed the world, how can I connect that to grace? Not so much. And Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness by the devil. That 40 doesn't seem to connect well. I, I couldn't put 40 together very well. Israel, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So I gave up on 40 real quick. I said, we've had enough trials. 40 seems to stand for mostly trouble and trials in the Bible, though it is not necessarily listed as a number that does that. It just seems to be what happens at 40. So I gave up too many hard times with 40. And I began to think, what could I do in thinking about this church by way of remembrance? It's what a good celebration does. It looks back. So I found myself in the book of Joshua. Moses is probably my favorite character in the Bible, and Joshua is a close second. So I find myself in Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4, and I would like to share that this morning. Let me just share with you, you have a great preacher. Now I'm going to share some of God's word, not really in an expiratory kind of way this morning. Uh, you get preaching all the time, and I'm going to lay scriptural foundations, and then I really at the end want to take and make some applications and some analogies as it relates to Grace Baptist Church as I remember and as I know. The context of this is found in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, where Moses is dying. God takes Moses after leading the children of Israel for 40 long years. He had trouble, too. And in 40 years, he did a couple of things that weren't really great. And so after 40 years, God takes him up onto Mount Nebo and says, here's where you were going, Moses. Take a look. Take a look at all the land that I have promised you. And Sorry, bud, but you made some errors as a leader, and you're done. You're not going to go there, but you can look at it. 
comes down off of the mountain. And I always thought that God buried him up on Mount Nebo. But if you read it carefully, God brought him down to the valley of Moab and buried him there. You ever have any kind of weird thinking of what that was like? Did God make a grave and say, Moses, sit there for a minute, it's just about over? <laughs> How did God take his life? I don't know. It doesn't matter. And nobody knows where his body was till this day because he would have become a relic of some sort and somebody would have been selling parts of the locks of his hair for money. Now God just said, Moses, you're the greatest prophet ever. Be satisfied with that. You're going to be buried. And that was that. And then Joshua comes along. And Joshua kind of opens up in the very beginning verses. God tells Joshua, Moses is dead. Moses was a tough act to follow, the greatest prophet ever. And Joshua knew that. So how am I going to deal with Moses that is now dead? And God takes a couple of chapters of kind of telling Joshua where he was going and giving some instructions and over and over said, I want you to be of good courage. Be of good courage, because as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And Joshua became a great military leader because he was God's man for the job. There was a big job ahead. Moses wasn't allowed to do it. He brought them from the Red Sea, which was a big deal, 40 years of wandering, and now we're ready to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And God chose Joshua to do that, to cross the Jordan River. Be of good courage. And so we have in chapter 3, actually, the crossing. And I would like to kind of go through this, not in great detail, it's too much, we'd be here for a couple of hours, but I want to pull up some highlights, and then we'll go back and pull out what those highlights are. There, there are the instructions given and the crossing in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to Jordan. It's a big deal. They're supposed to cross, but there's this river there. It's not a huge river, but it's overflowing its banks, and there was a problem. He and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. And the text tells us that they were three days camping, not really knowing what was going on. God had told Joshua what he was going to do and had given him some very direct, detailed instructions as to how this crossing was going to be. And it's this way throughout all of Joshua, and it's this way really throughout all the Bible as God is leading his people. God speaks to the leader, Joshua, and then Joshua takes the word of the Lord to the people, and the people say, yes. Happens over and over and over again in Joshua. And when the people said no to Moses or Joshua, trouble came. Now, that's not to say that leaders know everything, but leaders are often given urges and and uh, by the spirit, ideas of where to go, and it's often weird, right? It doesn't make sense. Remember when Joshua finally went into Jericho? God said, here's what you're going to do. Walk around the city. That didn't make any sense, but God told Joshua what to do, and Joshua told the people, and the people did it, and the walls of Jericho came falling down. So Joshua was a leader, and he heard directly from God and here's what he was told to do. Uh, in verse 3, the Ark of the Covenant is going to be, be, be carried by priest, and you will follow it. Verse 4, yet there shall be a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits. Cubit is about 18 inches. So we're looking at, what, about 3,000 feet, which is more than half a mile. Why would they want 
the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, moving so far ahead of them that they had to look way out to see them. Well, we'll think about how many people there were that they had to do it that way. So about a half a mile distance between the presence of God and where the people were going. And verse 4, he said, you need to follow the presence of God. And the last phrase says, for you have not passed this way before. Now, we're going to talk about where we have passed as a church before. And now you're being led by pastors and elders that have been here for 10 plus years. But, but where you're going, you haven't been before. So your leaders need to hear from God, and then you need to hear from your leaders the word of God, and then go where God wants. It is a new path. You have not traveled here before. So here are some instructions. Joshua says in verse 6, what to do, take up the ark, move ahead. So they did. Verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, again, didn't tell everybody, he told Joshua, Today, this is, this is one of the key things I'm going to bring out in these couple of chapters. Today, in this problem area of getting across Jordan, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. And in chapter 4 and verse 14, that's what happened. God said, today you are exalted in the sight of the people by leading through this major issue. That they may know, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant. And here's the exact directions. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you, will not st- you shall stand still in the Jordan. Not on the bank, but you will go in. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, he didn't say he understood it, but he said, come here and listen not to me, but listen to the words of God. Here's what God said to do. And the priests then were directed to go and stand in the water, and when they stood in the water, God was going to do something pretty amazing. What did God do? This is one of the biggies. In verse 15, notice what God did. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. That was an act of faith. They had to actually step in the water. Because the Jordan River, that's not a huge river, but it was overflowing its banks at that time of harvest. There was, there was a flood. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarephan. Da, 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 da. Hmm, I think the problem with that passage is the da 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 da. We read passages like that and don't really look at it. And I began to do a search. Why, why did God put those details there? Do you have any idea that there were probably, well, I, I don't know how many people, but could be several million people. It would be like emptying out the city of Louisville and saying, we're going to evacuate you across the Ohio River into Indiana. If there's a million and a half people doing that, the pictures of seeing the, the, the waves part just a little bit and the people walking through on single file doesn't really work. That would take weeks or months. Do you have any idea how far it was from where Joshua was to where the city of Adam was and God pushed the water? It was 20 miles. Imagine that. That God blew a wind in 20 miles and those waves, those waters stood in a heap 20 miles away so that the entire nation could go through. Probably, I've heard, don't ask Google. Google said 70,000. Well, there were 40,000 footmen. There were 600,000 when Moses brought them out of Egypt, 600,000 men, probably more than that with children and 
and uh, wives, a lot more than that. And of course, that generation died away, but they kept re you know, reproducing and having kids and, and grandkids and great-grandkids and so on for those 40 years. So there's a lot of people. How many exactly, I don't know, but there's a lot of people. And those lot of people had to cross, and those lot of people didn't know what to do except to follow the presence of God and watch what would happen. And if they watched and followed their leader, that God would do something amazing. And God did not want them to ever forget that they walked through this river on dry ground. And in chapter 4, we get what God did so that they would not forget. Notice chapter 4. We begin to see what happens in chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, according to the command, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firm. Again, the, notice the details. Go back where the priest entered the water and stood. There's stones there. It's now dry. And I want you to pick 12 guys. And those 12 guys will pick 12 stones. And they're going to put that upon their shoulder down in verse, well, let's go to verse 5. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Now, if there is a turning point or a crux to a chapter it is right here in verse 6 here's why they had them grab stones that this may be a sign among you when your children ask so this is like a generation is gone new people are going to be walking around Jordan and at flood stage they won't see these rocks but when, when the flood goes down it's going to expose these rocks and the kids are going to say hey dad what's with the rocks or as scripture says your children are going to say what do those rocks mean? That sounds a little more spiritual than what's with the rocks. And he says, here's what you're going to tell them. You're going to rehearse to them that these waters that were flooding in Jordan and how we had a million or so people pass over and how the God raised up that water and threw it 20 miles away so we could cross. God did a big thing, and he wanted the people never to forget. And so he says at the end of verse 7, so these stones shall be to the people a of Israel, a memorial forever, forever. And we are today talking about it how many thousands of years later. There's a strange little thing going on in the next few verses that's a little bit uh, hard to understand. Let me just read verse 8. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Here's where it gets a little bit fuzzy. Just as the Lord told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. So they crossed the Jordan River, they took these 12 rocks, and they laid them down. Now notice, and Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of Jordan. So which is it? Are they on the other side of Jordan, or are they in the middle of Jordan? And later on, in verse 19, it says that they carried those rocks when they encamped at Gilgal, and they set up those rocks in Gilgal. So what's with the rocks? The only thing I can figure out is that when the water had gone, Joshua said, we can't forget this place where the priests were. We can't forget Jordan. I'm going to set up 12 different rocks here, and the rest of you guys are going to carry your rocks all the way to Gilgal. 
And wherever we're at, we want that as a memorial of what God is doing. What did that look like, really? Uh, It says stones, actually. So I, I, I thought I would bring a couple of stones up and just kind of see what it really might have been like. You guys have the stones. Would you just come up here? The little stones. You got them? Yeah, you guys come right up here. Stand right up here. So these guys are Israelites, and these are the guys chosen to carry the stones out of the water. You notice how round they are? You know, they're smooth because they've been in the water for thousands of years. The stones. What do you think is wrong with those stones? Anything, you know what's wrong with them? Well, let me read something here. Joshua told them to put those stones on their shoulder. Put those stones. How, how do you carry those stones? Normally? How would you carry them? You put them in your pocket, right? Or just hold them out here, right? How do you carry the stones? Would you ever take these stones and just kind of put them on your shoulder and say, I'll just hold that up there? Is that the way you'd carry stones? No, that's a bad picture, right? So why wouldn't you do that? It's kind of weird, right? You, have, you play violin now, right? You put a violin on your shoulder, but not rocks. Those rocks are too small. All right, thank you. You kept those in your pocket. We have a couple other guys that are coming up that I think give a, a, a picture of what those stones were like. They're probably bigger than this, but these guys couldn't handle it, so we got some smaller, smaller rocks. So how would you carry rocks that are that big or bigger? How would you carry it? How long are you going to carry it like this? Caleb? Yeah, even, say double or triple that size. How long are you going to carry it? Yeah, and then what happens? Start hurting your back, right? So when you carry something heavy, what do you do? Put it on your shoulder, right? So these rocks, 12 of them, he said you're going to carry all the way to the other side of the Jordan, and you're going to carry them all the way to Gilgal, and we're going to set them up there as a monument. So this is the way it looked. Probably bigger, but these guys can't handle it. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. You set those rocks. Just set them down there as a, just as a reminder. It's interesting to know why God does things like that. He said, I never want you to forget. When God does something big, he often does something to say, don't forget what I did. And in this instance was to go to the memorial stones. And he says those memorial stones are there till this day. Is that 2023? You think those rocks are still there? No. Hermeneutically, you got to go back and say this day is kind of when Joshua was being written and he said, those rocks are there today. If they were still today, uh, you'd probably have an entrepreneur like Don Haywood find a way to go get them and bring them all the way over to an Amish shop in Springwater and say, these are original Amish stones that have some great meaning. He'd be selling them for high bucks, <laughs> the Amish stones. That's what happens to relics. Oh, no, Don's not a relic. I wasn't saying that. But that's what happens to relics that have meaning. So those stones are not there as far as we know. Now, there's another thing that becomes important in this passage, and that is verse 24. This is really something that happens over and over in Scripture that I'm seeing more than I have ever seen in my life. So they crossed, they they laid the stones in Gilgal, the 12, 12 stones, and again, the reminder in verse 20, when your children ask their Fathers, in times to pass, what do these stones mean? Then you will let your children know. Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground, and, and it wouldn't be just in monotone. It would be, man, you couldn't believe what happened. I wish you were there. It was amazing what God did. That's, that's how it would be, as a memorial. Look at verse 24. Also, God sets up these 
things when he does something big that he wants to be known. Notice this, verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What is that? That's mission. That's mission. Sometimes we get the idea, well, you know, just God cares about his people, just us. No, no. God cares for the world. And he sends missionaries, and he has a major mission going on. So what do we learn? It would be fun to interact with this entire text in detail, but, but I, I want to do something new, different. I, I want to pull out some key things that are important here as it relates to celebrations and memorials. And first of all, is in verse 24, is that God is always missional. I want you to think about that just a little bit, because if you're like me, I get caught up in the moment. It's not about the moment. That, that's something, but God is, is doing something way, way bigger than we can ever know or ever see in every incident that happens. God is sovereign like that. I recently read for the third time a book by Christopher Wright called The Mission of God. It's one of those books that's 500 and some pages long. It's kind of heady. So I don't do well with that. I got through it halfway one time, and I three quarters once. And a few months ago, I reread it again. And his goal is to take all the instances of Scripture that, that we look as little snippets of stories that we know well and say, what is God doing besides right there? What is God doing over the meta narrative? What is he doing for mission? God is always on mission to bring a people for his namesake. Ephesians 1, it says, the mystery according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in heaven and on earth. Now, we can apply this personally, but let me just give you a couple of ideas that will get your thinking. I when I went through this book recently, I wrote the word mission by every place that he said, here's a little snippet, but it's about mission if you knew the whole story. And the word mission is written all over my Bible. It's just everywhere. Psalms, Proverbs, all, everywhere. For instance, all of us know the story of David and Goliath, right? It is a great story. The story you learn early in Sunday school, Goliath, big guy, going against the armies of Israel, and young David, not afraid, comes out with a slingshot, says, who you big hunk of flesh and bones, I'll feed you to the birds and I'm going to cut your head off. And he with a slingshot, he slays them and all the armies of the Philistines leave. It's a great story. But something I found out not, re not too long ago was that that's, that's just the story. What was God trying to do? You get the idea, well, the Israelites are God's people and God hates the Philistines, the enemies of God. God doesn't hate them. God has people around the world, including Philistines, that he is going to draw to himself, and he uses hard things, David and Goliath, to do it. Christopher Wright points to a place in Zechariah that says that later on, years later in Israel, the Philistines, a lot of them had been incorporated into the tribe of Judah. Some of them were leaders. So it's not just David and Goliath. God is doing something way bigger than that. The Gibeonites is another illustration. Joshua is moving through um, the promised land, conquering city after city, doing a really good job. And these Gibeonites looked at each other and said, wow, big God they've got. They're winning all these battles, and we're next. Let's do this. 
let's put old clothes on, rip them up. Let's put some old wine skins and make them look like they're leaking. Let's mold our bread and let's go to there and just say, we're just a really suffering people. We need some help. Can we be your slaves? So that's what they did. And they fooled Joshua and all the other leaders of Israel. Joshua said, yeah, and they made an actual covenant with them that we will have you serve us forever. We'll never get rid of you. We won't kill you. Later on, when it was found out that they had been fooled, a lot of the leaders said, well, we need to get rid of them. Let's kill them. They, they cheated us. Joshua said, no, we have, we have a covenant made. So what was God doing in that hard thing? And kind of a theme is that when hard things happen, it's not just about that hard thing. If you read the book of Nehemiah, the great leader to restore the wall, later on when Nehemiah was listing the tribes of Israel, do you know who was listed right along with them? The Gibeonites. The Gibeonites. So God is doing hard things to reach out and win the world. And he's doing that now in so many ways. I reread Exodus not that long ago. I don't think you're preaching through Exodus right now. It's kind of interesting that when the Egyptians finally let Israel go. Israel, the Israelites went and asked them for gold and silver and all kinds of riches, and they gave it to them. There was some kind of thing going on there. And it says, when they came up out of Egypt, the Israelites came out with a mixed multitude. What is that? That, that is not Israelites. That are other nations, other peoples, other Egyptians that had seen the glory of God and had connected themselves to the people of Israel. And I know that a lot of our life seems like trivial, hard things that make no sense. Me getting this polio thing. You know, it just made no sense. But it's way bigger than that. I don't know how much bigger it, it is than that. But look what God is doing here as a result of me going. Right? It's phenomenal what God is doing, and we're really grateful for that. God is calling to himself a people from around the world, and he'll do anything to do that. I think it would be wise for us to look at our own problems in light of eternity. We, I don't always do that. I get caught up in the moment. David Paul Tripp wrote a book called um, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Any relationship is a mess. It can, we're, we're, we're fallen human beings, and it can be real messy. And all of those messes present an opportunity for us to act like Christians and make an influence on those that are around us that are messy. You remember when Abraham and Lot were out and they were growing rich and they had camels and sheep by the thousands and, and it says the land could not contain them. And so they were fighting. All the shepherds of Abraham fighting with the shepherds of Lot for water and food and grasslands and so on. And finally Abraham looks at that and he says, this isn't good. He said, Lot, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I want you to choose where you will go. You can go to Sodom and all those well-watered places. And whatever you choose, I'll take the opposite. And I'll go in the other direction. Lot chose Sodom and ruined his life and his kids' lives as well. Oh, he had, he had a mate. He sat in the gate and all that. But, but he ruined his life. He went that way. And Abraham went the other way that God led him and has been blessed, and we are blessed with that today. But here's an interesting phrase. We don't have time to go into it. When Abraham said, Lot, let's stop fighting, he said this, because the Canaanite is in the land. The ungodly are watching. And we ungodly watch 
that, that is when in trouble our lives make a difference. When you go to the doctor, you know, the snippet is the doctor said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but you have fourth stage cancer, whatever. If we get caught up in that moment, we lose the opportunity to be a witness to help people see that there is a God in heaven. And sometimes we live in a way that seems like he isn't. We, we forget that. And I, I'm as guilty as anybody else. So three things. God is missional. There's also the role of leadership, which we won't spend a lot of time on, but that is kind of a thing that comes up over and over here. When I first had trouble in a church in Michigan, I called a guy who seemed to know how to handle trouble, and you talked to him for about a half an hour, and he finally said, are you finished? I was talking about this guy in my first church, and power struggle kind of a thing. He said, are you finished? I said, yeah, a couple more things. He said, well, are you done? I said, yeah, I'm done. He said, okay. You got a pencil? You got a Bible? Well, I thought you just made me feel good. He said, no, this isn't feel good time. This is time to go to your Bible. And he takes me to the portion of scripture where we find the Lord's um, covenant, or the, the Lord's supper. 1 Corinthians 11. I said, we're going to have communion over the phone? He said, no. He goes to verse, I think it's 25. It says, troubles must, and he said, that is kind of the emphasis of the verse. Troubles must come so that the man that God chooses will be elevated. That's basically what it is saying. Troubles come so that we see who comes down on God's side of issues, and those are the ones that you elevate to leadership. And it is often through times of trouble and hardship that God uses that to elevate leadership. So leadership is important. When God has a job to do, he calls a man. He calls Moses. He calls Abraham. He calls Gideon. And they lead by the word of God. And I want to tell you something. Leadership is hard. I'm going to tell you something else. Followership is as hard, if not harder. I sometimes wonder, how did Grace Baptist ever follow me? <laughs> it is hard to sit in a congregation. I've been sitting in congregations now for about 14 years following somebody else, and I'm telling you, it is hard. And I wonder, how did they ever follow me? Only by God's grace. So God, God gives leadership ideas. God Tells them things as they read the word of God. God gives them vision, and then we are supposed to follow. So the importance of memorials, the importance of leadership, and the importance of memorials, whether it's creation or you were slaves in Egypt, and now I have set you free. Say, so well, what kind of memorials do we have? I doubt that those stones are going to be more there more than just when this end, service ends, because we're not supposed to have any other pictures. The pictures that God gave us by memorials are what? Baptism, right? And the Lord's Supper. That is our memorial stones. And that's the only two God has given us. Uh, Pastor Dave and I were members of the same church, not at the same time, but it was kind of weird when I joined that church and I started seeing the excitement that they did over baptism. They get baptized, Dave, I don't know if it was like that when, when you were there, but a lot of new people getting baptized, and you know what the people did? They'd stand up, rah, rah, hoo-hoo, whistle. We, we saw a football team by, by Dansville, this week, not worth talking about, but we saw it anyway. And at some point, they snapped, at some key points, they just started pounding their feet on, on the stands and all this noise, excited about what is about to happen or what they hoped would happen that never did. And I got to thinking, you know what? Just like the Jordan River piling up 20 miles and the people going out by the millions on dry land, remember that. Every time somebody is baptized, 
it's at least that exciting. Somebody has gone from death to life, and they're willing to come out and say, hey, everybody, take a look. I'm buried with Christ. I'm raised. It's great. Hoop and holler. I don't know whether you do that or not. Don't listen to me unless Dave tells you to do that. But it is exciting. And for years, I thought, well, it's just so solemn. Let's just never say anything. No, no. Our church now kind of hoops and hollers and, hey, claps and all that kind of stuff. What about the Lord's Supper? Eh. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that should be a little more solemn. But these are two things that the church has been given to remember who God is. And I'm glad that you're continuing to do those two things. So, what does that mean for Grace Baptist? There are some memorial stones that you should never forget. I'm not saying make pictures of them, but to remember, just like you are right now. And for those of you that don't know, I'm just going to go through a few things that I know about the beginnings of this church. There was a guy, I didn't know him, his name was Blackwell, I think, and he did a Bible study. I believe he was going to try to start a church. And there were several churches tried to start here being Baptist and, and never worked out. And so he had a Bible study, and he was beginning to teach some things that made you wonder. Sovereignty of God in everything that God chooses, God elects, predestination, all that. He began to teach that it just kind of came out. Well, there were a group of really cool people who said, You've got to be kidding. They got together behind the pastor's back and started talking and said, uh, this guy's whacked. Now, I don't know how that actually happened, but I know that on purpose they said, not us. And they turned out and they walked away from that Bible study. Is anybody here that was part of that? Norma probably is the only one that was. Isn't that ironic? That that was the beginning of Grace Baptist. And Grace Baptist, when I, when I started teaching those doctrines here, I had somebody come up and said, you're probably wondering why you're giving, we're giving you such trouble. I said, yeah, it has occurred to, <laughs> occurred to me a time or two. And he told me that story, how that they pulled away from a Bible study that began teaching the sovereignty of God and salvation and so on. That's an interesting beginning that we, sh we shouldn't forget. And then sometime in there, the, church, the, the group began to grow, and they started talking about planting a church, and they called Tom Logs, Logston Health by Continental Baptist Mission. Tom is a great church planter. I know him. I worked with him in, in missions, and he helped me a great deal as it related to how to deal with pre-field ministries. And Tom is a good church. I don't know how many churches he planted. He planted one here, one at Geneseo, and I know more. The last I t saw Tom, he was getting a little older. He was doing administration just like I was, and, and he said, Drew, he, he said, you know what, this administration stuff, yeah, it's important. He said, but I wonder if I've got one more church plant in me. Isn't that great? That was his heart, and Tom was good at it, and this church is a result of that. We never need to forget that. I was so excited that you had Tom come here and speak. That is so gracious and so wonderful, and I understand it was just a really good time. Then you had your first pastor, Pastor Hardick. I hope you get to have him here. The memorial stone that he left was a stone, I think, of stability. I hear of what an amazing preacher he was. Now, you kind of hate to hear that as a preacher coming into a place. You should have seen our first pastor. He was great, but he brought stability. And I, and I understand that they had wonderful floats in the parades here, and they reached out to the community. I never met Steve Hardick, but I did hear a lot about him. And at that, at that time, they had Mike Paris and a guy named Jonathan. 
as, a pa- as associates. And those are things that you shouldn't forget, things that I don't really know much about having never been here and not met them. But I know it was, it was a number of years that he stabilized this church. And having a pastor does that. And then there was a time without a pastor. Those kind of memorial stones are hard to remember. Discouragement, bringing you to prayer, uh, wondering what's God doing. And that's where I entered this church. And um, through a process of talking to various people, I found out that Grace Baptist was open. And I was longing to get back into the pastorate. I've never been a good administrator. I don't even like administration. Just keep it away from me. Let, Let somebody else do that. And that's what I was doing for two years. So I came here, we, we had an old bus, we were traveling for the mission in a, in a motorhome, a 1956 Greyhound bus redone into a motorhome. You guys remember that? I pulled that up here and, and an old, old, young, uh, old, old, short kind of guy runs up to us, threw his arm around us and said, I think you're going to be our next pastor. I'm like, what? My wife impresses you that much, huh? And it was such a welcoming thing. And then we started learning together after God called us here. I, re, I think a memorial stone that was a biggie is that we chose 10 people, mostly couples. Um, some of you are here, some of you are not. We, we started meeting every Sunday night, as I recall, doing discipleship, walking through a navigator, basic stuff study. And it, it brought a group together that were willing to learn together, trust God together. It developed leadership. And from then on, we just we gave testimony, people that went through it, of what it was doing for them. And I think within two years, 80% of our church had been through that and seen what small groups do, what learning does, discipleship. And, and everybody was really kind of an excited during, during that time. And when I came here, I think I told the Sunday school this morning that I, I said a dumb thing. I told Keith Jenkins, who I think was chairman of the pulpit committee or deacons or something. And, and uh, Keith said, I, he said, well, I know we've got a lot of things to change. I said, yeah, I, I got a, a list. And he said, here's what I'll tell you. That if you show us from the word of God, we'll go. Pastor, if you have people still that way, it's the best you can get. You show us in the word of God, and we're going to follow you. That's what God expects of people, to follow their leaders in that way. And then we, we had the music uh, thing going on here. We, we, uh, it wasn't good, and I knew something had to change. And uh, even as, as we were leaving this church, do you know that what you've got now here is, is really more of a result of Pastor Theobald? When he and I met, and he said, well, what are the issues? I said, well, music, we don't have much going on. I said, we have this one lady that can sing, and we've had her sing some, and talking about Chris. And I said, but I don't like this leading stuff anymore. He said, well, get out of the way and let her lead. I said, what? <laughs> Guess what? That's what we did. I don't know if you're still doing that, but at least some, I'm sure, and following her. And God has brought together that to honor the Lord, to glorify him. And then we had a summer of talking about what God says really about salvation. And that was a time where I was getting, wow, uh, I'm beginning to change doctrinally. I don't know what's going to happen, whether I can stay in this church. And I remember coming to the church and said, this is our constitution, bylaws, doctrinal statement, and this is the Bible. And so we can't go like this, that the constitution is ahead of the Bible, that no matter what we think, we have to say the Bible is the head of this, whether we really understand it all or not. Everybody agreed. So I said, well, I'm going to preach the summer on soteriology. We're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation all summer long. 
And I'm just going to warn you ahead of time that it's very different than what we say we believe in this church. That's kind of bold and stupid, isn't it? But I did it, and the people followed along, mostly. And God brought that as a cornerstone. And then we began to change doctrinally and to grow into things I should have known years ago and never did. I told Keith Jenkins, I said, well, one thing when I come to this church, I've had a large church, I've had a medium-sized church, I've been a missionary, and I've been a part of a mission. I'm not coming here to learn. I really want to lead and have everybody follow. Isn't that dumb? It's one of the dumbest things that I ever said. Because I learned more at this church than I learned my whole life. It's all of what God is doing. It's a memorial stone, something to remember. There was outreach going on to the school, to balloon festivals and ministry on our grounds and then there was eldership i mean there are all these things that you read in the bible and say eldership that that's dumb whoever came up with that idea i started going to different conferences alistair Begg and john macarthur and ralph johnson would go with me and we thought well what about this eldership stuff sounds crazy so i had a friend reed ferguson you, you know him he's preached here and um i talked to reed one day as part of this pastor's fellowship that he had. I said, Reed, what is, I didn't know he had elders in his church. I said, it seems kind of crazy. You know, I'm the leader. How do we do this elder thing? And he, he was very gracious. He didn't say, you dumb, crazy guy. I've got elders. He didn't say that. He said, I'll, I'll tell you what we'll do, Drew. He said, let's study the New Testament together for the next month. You read the epistles, I'll read the epistles, and you come back in a month and we'll, we'll meet and see what the Bible says. So I came back with him. We had coffee, and he said, well, how would you do on this, this uh, study? I said, well, not too well. Well, he said, did you find any churches that are operating like you do? How many? <laughs> none. I said, none. And so then we said, okay, what do I do about that? And that, the pastor, as you learn things as a pastor, you want people to learn and follow God. And thankfully, the church got on board of that. And I remember the study halfway through the summer when we were doing small groups and preaching about eldership. About halfway through the summer, people started saying, Pastor, it's in the Bible. What's, what, why are you so slow? Get on it. Let's get elders. And they did. Again, proving that show us in the Bible, and we'll go there. You couldn't, couldn't pastor a church better than doing that. And then, of course, there's trials, and then, you know, the post-polio syndrome crazy thing that I got. That, that's a rock of remembrance. And, and, you know, our, I, I sometimes get caught up in what I was going through. But, Ralph, what this church was going through at that time, trying to live out the sovereignty of God in a very hard time. So that's the history. That's the history. What's next? Here's the great thing. I don't have to lead you in that. But I tell you what, the importance of leadership is huge, and I guarantee you that knowing pastor, uh, your pastors and elders, that they are going to lead you in things that are important. Nothing new. It's going to be missions. It's going to be discipleship. It's going to be fellowship. It's going to be communion, baptism. It's going to be the things that you do, maybe in new ways, new better ways, but that's the basis, and it's going to stick with the word of God, and you are creating for the next 40 years rocks. I won't be here to preach the idiot. Trust me. Maybe Dave will. And look back and say, let me tell you about those 30 years that I was there. Let's pull out some new rocks and tell you what happened to me. And it's often through trials that God does that. But I want to leave you with this as a congregation. I don't provide vision for you anymore. That's not my job. But here is my job, to encourage you. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. I know that's not always easy. It's hard. But it's what the Bible commands of us lay people. Why? For they watch over your souls. You know what it's like to watch over souls? When we're developing elders here, uh, some of the elders, Keith in particular, farmer guy, he came to me one day, I took him on some trouble tours and meeting with people, and he said, one night I feel like I've worked for a month being with you. And then he started saying, I'm not sleeping real well. I said, what's the problem? He said, I don't know, I'm just thinking about the people. I said, oh, that's a pretty good indication that you're going to be a good elder. You're carrying the burden. It's like carrying these rocks on your shoulders. You're dealing with souls. Nobody else is going to give an account for the souls of these people outside of the elders that are here. It's a big burden, but it's a great thing. They watch over your souls as those that will give an account. And here's what I would encourage you as I leave. Let them do this. In other words, not just sit back, but actively help them, allow them to do this with joy and not with groaning. Sometimes as a pastor, you go through things and there's just nothing to do but groan. Help them. Come to church. Know your elders in a way that what can I do to help them serve with joy? Because if you don't, that is no advantage for you. God gives you leaders to lead. Let them lead. Follow them with joy. Respect them for the work's sake that they give. And this church will be creating more memorial stones that will never be forgotten. The old ones, yeah. But you can't stay there. God is going to bring new things to remember for his glory.